You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy. Joining me as usual is ITK analyst David Leach. David, um, I trust you are well in the midst of this ongoing energy crisis. Uh, Yes, Giles, I've done something about my electricity bills and uh, I feel sympathy for all those clients who haven't uh, aren't hedged and energy retailers that aren't hedged. But uh, uh, we've got a great guest this week uh, to talk a little bit about uh, what's going to happen in the medium term that they can do to fix things up. Well, that's quite right. Yes, um, um, there's lots of medium and long-term solutions to the energy crisis, not many short-term solutions. And I guess we might get to what some of them may be after this interview. But first of all, let's uh, earlier this week, or late last week, actually, we got to talk to Brett Redmond, the CEO of Transgrid. Uh, Brett, as you may remember, was the um, former CEO of AGL Energy, um, since moved over to Transgrid, the transmission company. And I guess the sort of of, um, one of the reasons for talking to Brett was that they just started construction on what is Australia's biggest transmission project for a long time, the Project Energy Connect from South Australia to New South Wales. Anyway, without further ado, here's Brett Redmond from Transgrid. Brett Redmond, uh, CEO of Transgrid now. Um, thanks for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thanks, Giles. And hello, David. Pleased to be here. Well, it's great to have you back. I think the last time we talked with you, you were CEO of um, AGL Energy, and I guess it's with the energy crisis was seems to be what it's been called enveloping around around us. Um, I'm just wondering whether being head of a network company is a safer place to look upon this <laughs> events. I, I, I'm not sure if there's any safe place in the storm, but um, uh, I'm certainly pleased to be at the front edge of front edge of change here. Um, uh, there's a lot that we can do around transmission. It's an exciting place to be. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I remember Transgrid, I think about a year ago, came out with a report talking about, you know, a rapid transition to renewables. And I can't remember the exact details, but I think it was talking about a 90% grid within a decade or so. I mean, are you still thinking that that is possible? I mean, I guess the the thrust of that report was that uh, we have the technologies but I guess the new things which have come up now is that do we have the rules, the regulations, the integration, and I guess now we wonder the supply chains to actually allow that to happen. Yep, yep you're spot on, Giles. Uh, just before Christmas, Transgrid put out a, um, a really good thought piece which explored, I think it was six scenarios of the future. Um, one, I think, was called deep decarbonisation. Another was hydrogen superpower. And those scenarios posited that we were getting to something like 90% renewables in that 2030, a bit, little bit beyond 2030 horizon. Uh, in a physical sense, I'm very much a believer that that, that is possible um, from a transmission point of view, which is obviously our focus here at Transgrid. Um, it's definitely possible to get the um, uh, the big transmission lines in place in time for the renewables to be built and connected to them. Uh, noting, of course, that there's no one solution in the future. It's going to be a blend. So uh, there's the big grid scale stuff around big transmission and big grid scale um, renewables, as well as uh, lots of 
um, DER, lots of decentralised energy, as well as a lot of demand side management. So there's a whole plethora of things going on, but our piece of that is is the big grid scale stuff around transmission and connected grid scale renewables moving energy around. Uh, how do we do it? What are the impediments and opportunities for change? Look, I think, you know, it's it's well articulated um, that things like the RIT-T process need to be looked at. I think um, uh, the new Minister Bowen, uh, newly minted Minister Bowen, has correctly called out that we need to review some of those approvals processes. Um, we need to keep looking at financeability and how to make sure that there's a um, a modest but reasonable return for investors to, to get on and do the building works. There's a broader challenge for infrastructure in Australia right now um, around access to labour and materials. So that's going to take some careful planning and how we do it. But my starting point in all of it is an absolute belief that we can do it. And particularly when I got asked a lot about questions like, you know, is the regulatory um, regime right? Is the approvals pathways right? Somewhat these things are an outworking of what the community wants. Um, and the more that we see a big push from the community, as most recently articulated, for example, in the recent federal election, the more we see that push and desire from the community to get change to happen, I'm a believer that change will happen. We need to roll up our sleeves. We need to look at the approval processes and other things. Um, we need to work on uh, making sure we've got the financing. We need to solve some really big challenges around access to labour and materials. But I am a believer uh, that we can get on and do it. Mm. I'm just wondering, you, you talk about that big social push from the election and that, that, that is really interesting too because I think that's had an impact on decisions made by the current AGL board and in a lot of the Mike Cannon-Brooks thing. But there's also this other question, I guess it's worth highlighting, um, social licence. And this doesn't talk about the broader community. This talks about specific communities who are impacted or otherwise by new transmission lines and things like that. And I was really interested to see um, Energy Co from New South Wales, which of course has got its own infrastructure plan, has been addressing this issue in particular. And the AEMC put out a couple of notes this week also um, talking about the issue of um, social licence, how to deal with that, uh, making sure that the networks are properly funded to do a proper sort of survey and grounding understanding about what the social requirements are. Um, and I guess I'm um, talking about financing, they also sort of flag maybe some changes with some of the depreciation calculations. Um, uh, how far does social licence figure on your um, thing, and, and, and I guess, um, sorry to roll a whole bunch of questions in at once, but one of the triggers for this conversation was that you've just started work on Project Energy Connect, which is this $2.3 billion link between New South Wales and South Australia, quite a groundbreaking link, infrastructure, uh, renewable um, superhighway. What have you learned from that that you will take forward in all the other different transmission lines that you'll do? So um, social licence in, in all its forms is an enormous part of what we think about, what we're, what we're leaning into, what we're looking to build. Um, if you look at the three strategic pillars of Transgrid, they are nurture trust, transform reliably and grow rapidly. And those terms are quite deliberately um, selected. Um, nurture trust is really important and social license if you like in dealing with community is at multiple levels so there's that kind of federal state level where there's there's broadly strong support for the move towards renewables and our work within it around transmission lines and then you bring it right the way down to very local communities and individual landowners farmers um, managers of parkland, where you're coming to them saying, look, this energy transition is a good thing, um, move to renewables is a good thing. And, and I do find even in these 
uh, not even as well as in these very local communities, strong support for that change. But but we have to recognise that while these projects benefit the great many, these projects for transmission, for example, will benefit millions of people, um, they really do impact the individual landowner when we come to want to put up transmission towers um, where we go. And we can't move to this future without doing that. These are linear projects where it's a little different to, say, wind and solar farms, where there's a degree of flexibility. Do you build your wind farm here or do you build it you know, 50 kilometres that way, with a linear project like building a transmission line that has to go from A to B, on the route from A to B, there will be many landowners affected. And we are spending a lot of time thinking about how we deal with that sensitively and sympathetically, um, doing what we can in terms of route selection, acknowledging that we have to pick a route. So you, you somewhat need the wisdom of Solomon when you're comparing one group of affected property owners with another group of affected property owners trying to work out what is the fairest outcome to move from A to B as we build these lines. And then finally, I think, you know, we, we consider compensation and what the regime around that is where what can we do where these projects benefit the many but really impact the few? What can we do to help compensate the few as we move forward? Um, it does vary from region to region. Um, Project Energy Connect, so the sod turning I was doing um, out near Mildura, but on the New South Wales side of the border near a town called Wentworth, um, these are big open plains, if you like, where building out there is much easier because you've just got so much space and so you can accommodate all sorts of things versus um, uh, Hume Link, which is the next active project that we're working on, building from places like Wagga up through Tumut up to Yass. There you're in much more... Um, uh, densely farmed areas, and, and so the impact is, is higher uh, and the degree of complexity is greater as we look to build. Um, Brett, it's, there's so much to talk about with Transgrid, but I just wondered if you could very briefly outline, in your opinion, or what, what you seek to uh, change, if anything, now that you're there compared to the Transgrid that was there before. My, my big focus, if I could... I don't know, encapsulate it in three words is get on with it. Um, I, I think um, we, we are at the front end of transition. Um, you, you know, you've got to, you know, without rehashing the, the phrases, we've got to build the transmission in order to get the renewables connected. Um, New South Wales is at the centre of the national um, electricity market. Transgrid is the, the um, transmission company for that state. We are in the middle and at the front of transition, so it is so important that we get on with it. So my job here has been all about um, building trust with our big stakeholders, be they community groups, governments, um, uh, consumer groups, regulators, um, that we are the team to get it done. Secondly, to, to reorganise the place, and, and we've gone through a bit of a, an organisation change to make sure that we're able to both run the existing grid at a very high level of reliability. We track at 99.99% reliability, keep doing that really well, while at the same time execute this big growth agenda and do that really well on time, on spec, on budget. Finally, doing all of that, as well as in, in building trust, doing all of that in the most efficient way possible. 
And we're always talking about efficiency and cost management. And wow, you know, in the current climate, we're doubling down on all of our internal focus on efficiency and cost management. You know, the build will take to spending money. You know, you can't not spend money when you're building. We have to give people the confidence that we're being the most efficient in the way that we're building as well, so that we're minimising the impact on, on people's bills as they sit around the kitchen table. Yeah, I don't personally think myself that speed and cost, uh, low cost, are necessarily completely compatible. Uh, uh, but now I just wanted to, I mean, transmission funding and rules are changing. And I see, for instance, that the New South Wales government is doing its Arana link, not necessarily using Transgrid. Uh, and on the same time, Transgrid itself uses a lot of uh, subcontractors. Uh, what is Transgrid's particular... I don't want to spend too long on this, but I'm just interested to... And, and Transgrid has a good reputation, I'm told, uh, by, by renewable developers. W- what exactly is it the skills that Transgrid brings to, to the, that makes it better than someone else to be doing these transmission projects? What, what, first and foremost, what you find is a very deep well of engineering excellence, electrical engineering excellence here at Transgrid. The size and the quality of the planning teams and the control teams and the the maintenance and associated teams is really deep. Um, It's something that's really impressed me when I've joined here. Um, You know, you've got people that have, some people are very new, like me, some people have been here for decades and decades and just deeply understand how the electricity network works and when we try and do things to it you know because like all things it might seem really robust but there's a fragility there if we're not careful when we do things like it there's just such a deep well of professional excellence Um, that really twins with a deep degree of care which comes through in the way people operate um, it's both in the central areas, like the, the head office, if you like, in Sydney, but also if you think about where transmission is built, um, it's built in the regions. So it's a very regional business as well with a lot of people in it that really care about you know, what they're doing in their communities and, and that reliability factor that stands up. So what do we bring to the party? Um, from a cost point of view, you're dead right. When we build, 90% plus, I think, of, of the spend on a new transmission build will be contracted in from someone. You know, uh, 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 whether it's local or or coming in from overseas, we're running very active tender processes to get the best cost outcomes. But what we're really good at is coordinating all of that together, maintaining a very high standard of technical excellence and getting the job done. Good, Brett. Uh, uh, So then I just wanted to ask, because we talk about this change to the RIT test, which uh, which a lot of people have talked about, at the same time, we've got Chris Bowen wanting to set up uh, his rewiring Australia, I think it is, $20 billion fund. I, I mean, if the federal government's going to fund the transmission, why do we need an RIT test? And on the other hand, if we have an RIT test that says that, uh, you know, it, it should be funded out of the pub, uh, by, the, by uh, consumers, then, then why do we need the fund? I mean, I, uh, how do you envisage... Uh, Chris Bowen's fund, uh, ALP fund, help, helping helping Transgrid and, and, and getting the job done quicker. So, so firstly, um, what I what I'm hearing Minister Bowen say is he wants to work with the existing system and plan. 
So, so what I'm not hearing him say is um, he wants to come up with his own plan and just rapidly override all the expert work that's gone on in planning for many years by EMO and others. So I think that's great because these plans didn't come about overnight or accidentally. They came through a lot of good thought and good planning. So he wants to work with that. The second is he, he said he wants to free up the RIT-T process where there is a balance here between getting consultation right but also, you know, you can get to the point where you spend so long in a planning and consultative phase. It's, it, it's not only diminishing returns, it has impacts. You, you go to the regions and you talk to people. Paralysis by analysis, uh, we used to call it. A, a bit of that, but also with local landowners and communities. When we go along there and say we're looking to build a transmission line and then spend three, four, five years trying to work out how we're going to do it, the mental health impacts of that as well are just profound. You know, so so there's a real there's a diminishing return beyond a certain period where you're just not getting more from it. But some process like uh, uh, maybe a shortened or more streamlined version of the RIT-T is important to make sure that the community, consumer groups at a macro level, local communities at a micro level, have a say in how this is all being done. Finally, from a funding point of view, there is a lot of private sector funding available for these sorts of projects. By no means does the federal government need to fund every dollar. By no means are our shareholders, for example, who represent some of the biggest funders of infrastructure in the world. They're very ready to fund, as are our banking groups and the like. What the Rewiring the Nation Fund potentially represents is, is the grease in the financial wheels. Um, it might mean that we need... 10% um, of project funding, a little bit like the role the CEFC has been playing, to, to do the last bit to get a project up and get it moving forward. I think that $20 billion that, that the um, Labor government has talked about has the potential to be multiplied maybe tenfold, you know, into $200, million, $200 billion worth of investment if it's applied smartly and it's applied to the, the edge case of what we need help on as opposed to trying to say it funds every dollar much bigger, better outcome for consumers and taxpayers and a much bigger bang for your buck if we lean into it that way. Sure, Brett. I'll just ask one more question and hand back to Giles. And I, I guess my question is this. It's the, you talk about getting on with it and it's, it comes to an attitude for risk. I mean, the way it works with the AER is you only get a, a regulated return, which essentially is assumed to be very low risk. But on the other hand, we need, as a nation, uh, company businesses such as Transgrid to get on with all these early works like you did with Project Energy Connect and, and just take the gamble that, that the project, frankly, that the project's going to get started. Things like HumeLink where, you know, Gordon Weimer at Snowy jumps up and down and up and down that without that his business will have a problem and so will New South Wales. I mean, to what extent can you actually take a bit more risk and accelerate some of these transmission works that have been essentially given the tick by, by AEMO via the ISP? So, so we're starting to do it by being smart about it. So um, we're, getting, we're getting on with HumeLink and, and we've got the, the underwriting that we need about to be signed and, and the, the first set of funding about to be signed off to do all the early works and planning there. VNI West, which is the third of the, the three project program, PEC, HumeLink, VNI West. VNI West is a great example where we went to the previous federal government um, but also, I believe, supported by the incoming Labor government to get underwriting for early works um, and early planning on that project. So we can start to pull forward 
in a, in a way um, spending quickly so that we can start the planning, which is often the longest phase, the planning phase of it. Um, I note, for example, in um, their submissions and feedback when they've been looking at our applications for the what's called CPA1, the first 10% of spending signed off on Humelink, which is about those early works, consumer groups like the EUAA are actively advocating bring forward and rapidly approve spending on planning um, so that we can get on with planning and get a better, a better cost outcome later um, when we come to do the other 90% of application and, and lock in because we've done some better upfront work and we've funded properly the planning phase. These are some of the things that we're already doing to start to move more quickly through this process. And I think we're going to be able to look at other things as well as we start to look at the RITC process, as we start to engage with the AER and the new federal government about what will it take to move quickly. But back to that word efficient for consumers, um, I agree with you that there can be a trade-off between speed and cost, um, but, but it doesn't have to be extreme. Um, and so our, our focus is on making sure that we continue to be efficient, that we move firmly forward and don't waste time. Um, where we're able to identify good projects and get on with it. Brett, we um, talked earlier about sort of cost and supply chain issues. Um, some of the um, proposals have already, for, for networks, have already experienced this sort of um, an increase in costs. Um, what is the a danger of those costs going up um, even further? And um, maybe you might have to think about sort of alternative technologies, such as maybe batteries and virtual transmission. So maybe to pick up on the second question first, um, we absolutely look at um, non-network solutions already and actively um, for different things that we're doing. Um, the, the rules around batteries are still a bit in their infancy, but we're bringing in batteries and supporting those sorts of projects where we can. Um, great example where we've looked at um, a non-network solution too was um, Broken Hill, um, uh, putting in the pumped uh, the, the pumped air solution, compressed air solution up there to help create yeah. a different form of storage as well. So um, we that, are... That, that, was an interest, that was an interesting one because it just basically highlighted one of the great weaknesses of the, um, of the national electricity rules and that there's no consideration for environmental impacts. So initially, you, you know, you're, you're sort of almost forced to conclude that you should be building two new diesel generators when clearly this pumped air storage thing was a much more interesting idea. It, I, I agree. And, you know, for me and for us here at Transgrid, we didn't want to be operating, we don't want to be operating diesel generation. Um, sort of great we, look. <laughs> yeah, we, we, yeah, we will. I think we are going to do some basic refurb on what's there just as a backup. Um, so mm. that you don't want to leave a community, you know, in, with no backup there. But, but, but we've done everything we could to lean into this idea of an alternate technology that delivers a cleaner solution and complicated, but we've got there. But it's yeah. a good example that, um, you know, earlier on I said that um, obviously we're very focused on transmission because that's what we do in an overall building sense. But the future is a blend of DER, um, demand-side management, lots of other technologies, as well as um, grid-scale transmission and grid-scale renewables. Mm -hmm. There's so much to do. There's room for all of them, and the future will have all of them in there. And, and we are thinking in a planning sense actively, very actively, about how to accommodate um, yeah. all those forms of technology.
And, and just about battery storage, I'm just wondering to what extent do the rules limit your interest um, or your ability to invest in, in, in batteries? I think someone made a mention at a, um, a recent conference, you basically got to cut the batteries in half. You can build a battery, you can use a certain part of it for the network part, but then you've got to basically lease it out or rent it out for other people to pay in those contested markets. Um, that um, I mean, is, is that a real problem or is that really, a, um, or, or can you get over that? I, look, I, I think it's an interesting challenge where uh, the mindset here, by the way, in these sorts of things, is we start from a what's best for customer, what's best for consumer, what's best for customer. Mm. Then we work backwards from that to work out what's our role in it. So, you know, I always find that's the, you know, that's the safe harbour, if you like, as you go through all of this complexity, work out best for customer, work backwards. We've done a big battery out at Walgrove, which was a great trial um, of how this can work, blending system strength services, as well as um, putting some of it out just to, to earn money um, on arbitrage out in the market. We don't trade it, by the way, but we contract it to someone else to do that. Um, what I'm seeing in the battery models that are emerging is they're all going to be a blend. The, the biggest share of value off a battery is from um, traded um, type things, so accessing the FCAS market, um, accessing the arbitrage of intraday trading. So that will tend to be more, therefore, a, a Gentile perhaps, you know, taking that on board versus the system strength parts of it, which I'm seeing are the smaller part of a value proposition in, in the battery. So we're working through, therefore, what are the different commercial models for acquiring the system strength services that we need? And then do we, are they best sold by us owning them directly or, or securing the service separately? Where that's playing out as we speak is the New South Wales government's Waratah battery, the 700 megawatt SIPS battery. We are closely engaging with the state government there, working out how to do it. And most likely, it looks like someone else will tender and build the battery and we'll be procuring the system strength service. We're still kind of working out exactly how the commercial model and the, and the, um, the purchasing model works. But, but going back to what's best for customer, the customer will get that battery into the system. So we'll benefit from system strength and flexibility as a result. Can, can I ask that one Brent, more quick? Go on, Josh. I'm just going to have some more questions because David's going to probably finish off with the questions. I know they've got limited time and I really want to get this question in. And you may want, not want to ask it, um, answer it. I mean, just you are a former chief executive of AGL. You must be watching with great interest as to what's been happening there with the merger plan, which is now being sort of withdrawn. Mike Cannon-Brooks's um, advocacy. Now we've got Oliver Yates representing a new impact um, group of impact in, investors. I mean, we've probably been through as many AGL CEOs as we have been through prime ministers on the issue of sort of transition and climate change. Um, I'm just wondering what your observations of that are and does the, does, does the problem look more simpler from outside looking back in? Uh, look, Giles, I'm, I'm sure you appreciate um, as, a, as a recently departed CEO of that business, I, I think it's inappropriate for me to comment specifically on what's happening at AGL. Um, mm. I, I, I think I would just step back and say transition is happening faster and faster in the market. Um, recent events like the Araring Origins announcement around closing Araring a bit earlier uh, are a great example of where transition is starting to accelerate. And so my focus now is with Transgrid really focusing on how to get that transition in place in a way that's secure for our customers and our communities. Uh, and I'd make a slightly wry comment that it's not just a, a, a recent chief executive, but Transgrid's also got a recent AGL chairman as its own chairman. So uh, 
Uh, there'd be a lot of AGL knowledge uh, within Transgrid. But uh, I, I wanted to ask Brett about um, Lumia and um, what do you think about Lumia and its opportunities and what it might mean for trans- what Lumia might mean for Transgrid shareholders and its place in the market. So when when we reorganised, when I reorganised Transgrid over the last six months. Um, uh, three big things drove the reorganisation. One was a focus on customer. Two was being responsive to that significant growth, that significant build that we need to put in place. The third was wrapped up in being responsive to customer, was recognising that our customers, so in the broad definitional sense of governments and regulators and Energy Co and the like, are looking for two different um, um, engagement models with us. One is the more traditional regulated prescribed model. So we've got that in place through what we call network. And the other is a, a contestable model, which, which for us, the front end of that is, is Lumia. And Lumia, Lumia is our different brand, if you like, and different front end that allows us to do things like what it's always done, contestable connections. Um, it's, it's now looking at where some transmission is now being put out for contest. We're looking to... Um, bid for that with different commercial models through Lumia that's able to be much more commercially flexible compared to the regulated model, but sit behind it. Some of the strength of the operating quality and ability of Transgrid um, sits behind it and backs it up. Um, Finally, it's also looking at other products and services like big batteries that we were just talking about. Lumia is a great vehicle for us to think about, can we bring something else to market that will benefit our customers? I, I think there is good opportunity there um, you know, the, the core of the business will always be the network business um, and, and that's where that great stability and strength will come from. But also providing different services through Lumia, which are contestable, gives our customers other options as well. And I guess we're running out of time. So my final question is going to be just something that is practical. And that is that there's clearly a very constrained link uh, between Sydney and between New South Wales and Victoria. Uh, and while some of the constraints are on the Victorian side, I believe related to the to the VNI, to, a, a lot of it. I'm constantly told that there's congestion, the Sydney reinforcement loop, which doesn't get a big sort of talk about in the national discussion, but it's a big project. Um, what what can Transgrid actually do to get more transmission, more energy out of Victoria into New South Wales during summer, which is causing massive price separation, that, that gap? And I'd like to see, it, uh, you know, ahead of big projects, just the whole thing de- de- widened, improved pretty quickly. So in, in terms of quick... Um, the, 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 what we're doing is finding ways. There's sometimes line augmentation, but also we lean into um, the latest and best technology. So one of the things that we've just finished is an upgrade of VNI. So that connection up into New South Wales and into Canberra, um, the, I think it's called VNI Minor, was the project. It was one of the first two ISP projects. So the other one was the Q&I upgrade up in the north. So we're just finishing both of them. Um, that's using uh, technology called smart wires or smart valves. And it's all about putting some extra equipment into our substations that makes the use of the existing lines much greater. So really boosting um, boosting the traffic, if you like, that way. So they're, they're quicker things that we can do and that we're doing. Um, in, a, in a transmission sense, you've got two programs of work. One we've talked about a lot, the three-project program of um, PEC, uh, uh, HumeLink and VNI West, which is the big upgrades to the south. 
Um, the other is what we call Sydney Ring and different parts of Sydney Ring, which, were, which you were touching on. The northern part of that, which is partly, partly the SIPS battery that we touched on earlier, the 700 megawatt um, Waratah battery is part of the solution. A bigger, longer-term solution is an upgrade there that we're looking at, uh, the, Hunter, um, the Hunter transmission upgrade. That's to the northern part. And we're starting the planning works for the southern part of Sydney Ring. The idea being trying to create a 500 kV um, set of lines around Sydney to really strengthen that flow, as you say, from north to south and south to north, so that wherever the, the cheaper power is being produced, um, being able to move that around to where the demand centres are. Yep, well, I, I, I wish Transgrid every luck with getting on with that because, uh, you know, it's a real problem when you've got a $40 price difference running for six or nine months of the year. $40 is trivial today, <laughs> but in normal electricity prices, it's quite a big sum. Uh, Brett, I think uh, I, thanks very much for talking to Energy Insiders and I wish you you and the Transgrid team all, all the luck in a, in, in, in a very vital and big job over the next year or two. All right, super. Thanks, David. Thanks, Giles. Pleasure to talk to you. And that was Brett Redman, the CEO of Transgrid. Um, David, um, Brett is clearly willing to get on with things, build more transmission lines, um, as most transmission companies are. Are they going to be yeah. able to? <laughs> uh, yes, I think they are. And Brett also, uh, you know, was open to consideration of, of paying more to affected landowners, which is the emerging issue uh, there are two things that could be done to speed up transmission. Uh, one is to just get uh, some change to the RIT process, which in my very simple and probably unworkable view of the world just says, well, uh, AEMO says it's part of the ISP. That means it should all be built right now using that $20 billion to pre-fund it uh, that the federal government's promised. And by the way, we're going to pay landowners, let them negotiate a bit harder or ease uh, uh, over their easements so that they can get something closer to what a wind farm uh, turbine operator gets. And let's get this transmission built as quick as possible because all the, many of the other things we need to do just won't happen without that. It's one of the enablers. It is indeed. Well, it'll be interesting to see. Um, the um, I guess we should probably, it's, a, it's a, a good length interview with Brett, so we should probably move on to sort of the more urgent crises around the Australian energy market at the moment. We've seen prices continue into June, even higher than they were in May, which were high enough to be a record ever on the market. Some quite extraordinary scenes. Really, the price doesn't seem to come below $300 without a good reason, which usually means lots of solar, lots of wind, and only temporarily. Uh, we're seeing diesel being burnt in place uh, instead of gas in, in South Australia and Victoria, possibly because it's cheaper, possibly because there's not enough gas around or the gas has been reserved for elsewhere. David, um, this is a long way of asking you about the short-term solutions. Now, we have heard about sort of grass reservations. We've heard this week at the Australian Energy Week and a renewed push for capacity markets. Um, there's also people reminding, uh, experts reminding people, about, what about energy efficiency and demand response? The things that we probably should have done for about the last 10 years and got a net benefit from it. What are your solutions, David? Well, there are uh, only very minor solutions in the short term. Uh, the you know the fundamental cause of the crisis really besides international prices is of uh, the rainfall which affected not just only eastern australia very heavily and has reduced coal supply you can see that despite the globally high prices uh, australia coal exports have fallen compared to last year uh, and you know indonesia had a major flooding as well and that restricted their coal exports to and then we can add russia in and what's going on there so 
There's a global coal shortage right now, and there's a shortage within Australia. Uh, and that's what's really the most fundamental cause of it. And that's we need more gas-fired generation as a result because it's winter when there's less wind and solar. And there's not enough, uh, it adds up to about a 15% increase in, in gas demand compared to what we would have had last year, not just in generation, but across all sources. Uh, and there's just not that much gas immediately available. You can't, uh, even if there was gas in Queensland, and there's not, but even if there was, there's a limit to how much you can ship down south uh, because of the pipeline constraints at, at Moomba. Uh, and, you know, the Iona gas storage in Victoria is shipping up as we all, as we heard last week. So that, that, that's just, what can we do about it? We can build more rooftop solar in a reasonably quickly, but that's not going to make that much of it. And we can do demand response like uh, Japan had to do when they had their nuclear accidents and things. It's just, uh, and we can turn the thermostats down. That's, you know, and just wear thicker jumpers. That's about it in the short term. <laughs> what we can't do, what we can't do, Giles, is this stuff. I, I could not believe my ears when I heard Frank Calabria call in for more coal. I mean, these big gentailers, uh, and I'll perhaps excuse Energy Australia a little bit because I think Mark Collette gets it to some extent, but they have not uh, signed PPAs or built any wind and solar. Frank Calabria is closing down Araring in three years' time and hasn't ordered any replacement generation for it. I mean, what does he think? That that's, when it closes in three years, that someone's just going to give him five gigawatts of wind and solar so he can keep on selling energy? I mean, that, that, you know, that amongst the most culpable groups are these big gentailers who have just refused to get with the transition at all. Uh, so, uh, and then we could get on to policy, but, but that, that, I want to start with what the private sector could have done, you know, a lot more. The, the energy industry, electricity, big players are as much to blame for this as any other single person. What about the idea with um, gas? I mean, there's obviously a push for more gas pipelines, for more gas fields, more gas extraction, um, gas reservations. Um, that is nothing but a patchwork policy which does nothing good in the long term and probably doesn't do very, very much in the short term well you just can't get that much more gas uh in in the short term you know it's like santos has ordered an extra drilling rig well <laughs> in a year or so that might help uh there's not going to do anything right now and in fact building more you know the, the thing is to have a proper long-term solution there's a, a big meeting tomorrow of everyone but it's, it's very clear to everyone in the industry. We've known for years what's needed to be done. The first thing that we need is an organised plan of coal generation closures, right? Now, Queensland is, government needs to get on board with this. That's, that's the most urgent priority. The way that could happen is the federal government could use some of its $20 billion to essentially incentivise coal generators like was suggested uh, uh, um, uh, by uh, Blue... Um, uh, thing of a jig, the consulting group, blew, uh, to to close to close down in an orderly fashion, and if some federal money went to Queensland, Queensland government would find that easier to sell to their stakeholders, uh, and then with an, a committed program of coal closures lasting over ten or fifteen years, uh, then you could expand the RET scheme uh, to incentivise the new energy to be built in advance of that, and you could have the various other state schemes because then everyone would have the certainty that they knew to actually commit to, to uh, building the replacement capacity. Because as you and I have been saying, every uh, second podcast for two, three, four years, you can't close stuff down without building the new stuff first. That's what we're finding out at the moment. 
And this stupid idea that this is a reason to build new gas, that's not what's been done anywhere else in the world. That's not what's going to happen in Europe or anything like that. I mean, you may have to burn the gas and coal that you've got harder and faster in the short term uh, while you're getting it done. But the, it, this is an, a reason to speed up the transition. It's obvious we need to get on with it. Um, what about gas reservation policy in the eastern states? I mean, you know, WA Minister Bill Johnson was quite funny <laughs> at the Australian Energy Conference this morning. He said, well, what, what crisis? We've still got cheap gas and uh, and what have you. I mean, I mean, I guess the fact is that WA actually does have cheap gas. It's got rather large gas fields. It's got relatively cheap gas in the eastern states. Most of the gas is sort of um, extracted from land-based um, resources, um, fracking or... Um, or um, other, other sort of drill sites, but it's not very cheap, so it's um, it's hardly a solution. Well, we could have had an import, an LNG import terminal as well, uh, if with a bit more support. But no one wanted to commit it to that because it, before it didn't seem like we would need it. Uh, look, gas reservation uh, has its point. I mean, I personally think, and I, a lot of people shoot me down for this, that I think consumers need to be exposed to these high prices. Uh, if prices work, you know, the cure for the high prices is the high prices. Yes, some businesses that have been stupid, it's going to cost them a lot. It's the same as if you don't take out insurance and your house burns down. It costs you a lot. That's why you have insurance. Uh, a gas capacity reservation mechanism, most of the gas is actually contracted. There's not that much gas around. The only uh, gas that I can easily think of that isn't contracted uh, long term uh, uh, is probably the forthcoming gas in New South Wales if Santos goes ahead, ahead with that development. Uh, and that's years away before it actually happens. And, and, you know, I don't personally think it'll be all that needed when it actually arrives. I mean, you could build more batteries in a hurry uh, faster if you wanted to. But in fact, what is actually going to happen, Giles, in my opinion, is firstly, the coal supply is going to gradually recover. That will probably happen, I guess, within six months if we don't get any more rain and possibly even within three months as the flooding goes, water recedes and coal operations get back to normal. Uh, uh, and secondly, we'll move into spring and the solar and the, and the um, wind production will go zooming right up again like they did last year uh, and demand will start falling off if it's a normal season. And bingo, all of a sudden, uh, things will look better. They still won't be great, but they'll look a lot better. And what about capacity markets? There's a renewed push from that, from the regulators and certain parts of the market. I mean, I guess it comes down to the how they are designed, whether they're there to incentivise a new generation or simply to prop up the old one. Well, I think you've just uh, said it right there, Giles. Uh, you know, if they've incentivised new generation, it's fine. Any Any capacity market to keep coal generation going longer... Uh, is stupid because we're not going to need that because if we do it right, we'll have a defined program of when the coal generation is going to close, right? That's nice to start with designing a program to keep coal generation open for longer. It starts with a program that specifies when each coal generator is going to close so that we can build the replacement capacity and put in penalties on them uh, not to close before then and to and to operate, assuming they don't break down. It's not so much a capacity market, it's an availability market. That's the most important thing. You can't keep guys for capacity and then not have them available. And yes, it has to, if you're going to have a longer term uh, capacity, available capacity market, uh, then it has to be low carbon. That's what we're trying to do. 
Absolutely. And we talked about an availability and a flexibility market um, oh, more than half a decade ago on, um, on Renew Economy. That's it, Charles. So, um, we done all of the electricity industry has known all this stuff for a decade. You know, I mean, it's nothing, not the slightest bit of it is new. All you're getting is the chickens coming home to roost because the big Gentilers have done nothing about it. And, and various state governments including and federal governments, including particularly the federal government and the Queensland government, just don't get it. Yeah. One government that did get it is the ACT government. It was um, quite satisfying to see um, the regulator from the ACT coming out um, this week and announcing that um, retail electricity prices from July the 1st would actually fall this year rather than the uh, double-digit rises that would um, inevitably occur in the other states. Um, just goes to show that there is actually a blueprint for what uh, needs to be done. And um, um, one territory, the ACT, you know, um, hats off to people like Simon Corbell and some of the other people who sort of led, led the fray on that. Um, um, doing the right thing. Giles, we shouldn't talk anymore because, uh, uh, you know, probably people are using up their valuable electricity listening to us. Uh, oh, we, just got to a good, we just got to a good news story there, David. <laughs> it, it's a great story, Giles. It's a fantastic story. Uh, it is. And, and, you know, it pays to have long-term PPAs and hedging. It pays to have rooftop solar. You've got rooftop solar. I've got rooftop solar. I got rid of my gas uh, heaters uh, last year. I got rid of my single radio electric heaters last year. We put inducted air conditioning. My electricity bill's been 15 or $20 a month. It might go up a bit with the air conditioning on all the time. But, you know, I'm at least 60 or 70% self-sufficient, even in winter, I think. And I don't know why most households who can afford it uh, haven't done the same thing. That's a good way to end. David, thank you very much um, for um, your comments today. We look forward to hearing from you on Australian Energy Week later on this week. Um, thanks also to Brett Redmond from Transgrid. Um, thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Evergen and Pardon, for the continued support. And we'll be back again next week with a, another episode of Energy Insiders. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.